Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, so what is Thrivehood, you might ask? Well, that's a good question. I'd say it's a relevant life roadmap for young men out there who want to thrive as they're maturing boldly into manhood. From the very serious to the silly, I chat about a wide variety of relatable topics that both challenge and motivate you to do what needs to be done now so you can become who you want to be later. I'm Tim Williams, and this is Thrivehood. Chase Replogle is the pastor of Bren Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri. He holds a number of degrees in biblical studies. He is a podcaster. He is also a husband and a father. He likes sailing, quail hunting, and from what I understand, he likes playing guitar, but he's not all that good at it. (laughs) But hey, here's what's exciting about Chase, is he's also an author. He wrote a book recently called The Five Masculine Instincts. His work has been featured on Good Morning America, Christian Today, and other influential magazines. And I was introduced to Chase through another podcast interview that I did a while back, and I got his book, read his book, and I'm like, man, we got to get him on here. So here is my interview with Chase, and hope you enjoy it, guys. Hey, guys, welcome into the Thrivehood Podcast, and I have the one, the only Chase. Chase, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you, and uh, looking forward to our conversation. I am too. So the five masculine instincts um i got your book i read it i was i wasn't quite sure what to expect you know you're always like what is this but before we dive into that here's obviously the sixty-four thousand dollar question why did you write this book what what was the purpose behind it the reasoning or or maybe what was it that prompted you to do this Yeah, well, first and foremost, I'm a pastor. So I pastor a congregation. And like most congregations, I've got men in that congregation. Uh, I'm a man myself. I'm raising a son as well as a daughter. And uh, I've seen over the last few years how, well, a couple of things. Number one, talking about what it means to be a man feels like it's kind of dangerous and controversial. Um, There's some cultural landmines you try to avoid. You're trying not to offend anyone. People have really strong opinions about the topic right now. And so unfortunately, what's been happening a lot, I think, in families and churches and just friendships, relationships, is we just don't talk about it as much. We're kind of avoiding the conversation. And I see it a lot with when I'm, you know, raising a daughter, there's so much positivity around growing into womanhood and what it means to be a girl today, which I'm thankful for. Um, but that topic doesn't seem to be raised as often for for the son that I'm raising as well. And so uh, seeing the the sort of challenge of the conversation and then also seeing a lot of the men in my congregation, uh, particularly the young men, were kind of wrestling with this 
question. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a Christian man in particular? And and how do you live that out in a world where sometimes your answer to that question may not line up with people around you? So I wanted to explore those questions and offer it. Um, one of the things a really good book can do is it can give you language for having better conversations. And that's what we're doing right now, right? We're able to talk about this partly because it's in writing and you've been able to read it. And so I hope that's what the book is. I hope it it uh, helps men that are reading it, but I also help it. I hope it helps them have better conversations about manhood as well. You know, um, so I did an episode. It's been a while back called the, uh, or I can't remember what it's called, the the epidemic or the pandemic of male bashing. And I, man, I am so on track with you about that. It's sad that we are in a society today that when you even just bring the I'll be honest, some in some environments, just the word masculinity almost has this negative connotation to it. And I'm just like, where in the world has this come from? I don't get it. Are, are you like, are you dealing with do you have men talk to you about this? Is this something you see on a regular basis? Yeah, it's one of the things that surprised me about the book a little bit is men will thank me for the tone of the book. I think when men pick up a book about masculinity, they expect that they're just going to sort of get beaten over the head with it, right? So you're just going <laughs> to yell at me and tell me how bad I am as a man. And that's not what I did with the book. Uh, I think there's sort of two narratives right now that men hear about masculinity. And one of those is that masculinity is toxic. Uh, you've probably heard that phrase, toxic masculinity, and that it yes. needs to be torn down and we need to build a new version, a new image of what men are supposed to be. And then there's been a kind of opposite reaction to that, where there are some men who say that your raw masculine instincts, right, those raw desires and feelings, that's manhood and you need to indulge it. You need to go there with kind of reckless and wild abandon and lean into that raw masculinity. And the thing that strikes me about both of those, although they seem like op opposites, they're both really fixated on the external things. So what I like, what my interests are, how I act, how I behave, how I present myself to the world. And neither one of them really has the, the more meaningful conversation, I think, about how do I just become a better man? That's the thing I'm really interested in, right? It's not just projecting some image of masculinity, but how do I just grow? How do I move past the things that are holding me back? How do I prepare myself to be a better husband and a better father and to work a career? So the book, uh, the subtitle of the book is A Guide to Becoming a Better Man. And really, that's what I wanted it to be, was just a way forward through the controversy that helps us just begin to make progress and become more like Christ to just begin growing. Yeah, and, and we'll get to this in a second, but you just touched on something. One of the, the five instincts is reputation. And when I read this, I thought, and we'll get to this in a minute, but you were talking about reputation versus character. You sort of touched on that for a second, but we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. So you, a couple things here. Uh, that I thought was great. I loved, can you explain to me what in the world five instincts of masculinity and meat have to do with each other? <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. So there's, um, I don't know if you know this, but there's this idea that men like meat. Uh, it's actually oh, been yeah. <laughs> studied and the, the sociologists will tell us that men eat 57% more meat than women. There's some funny stats like um, if you are a uh, if you're a man, you're 10 times more likely to kill an animal and eat it at some point in your life than a woman. <laughs> and there are these big questions about why. Why do men like meat more? And uh, it, there's some really complicated answers to that question. Some people think it's evolutionary. 
binary. Some people think it's created by marketers trying to sell product. Some people think that it's a, a meat-only diet cures men of health problems. Some people think we need to all be vegans so that we can save the planet. And I raised the question early in the book, if we can't agree on what men should eat, or if talking about what you like causes this much debate and controversy, what else is confusing about being a man today? And well, I think we've sort of already been talking about that a lot is confusing about manhood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that, so that leads me to the next question here. We're just talking about a couple things that jumped out at me. And I thought this was interesting. You talk about masculine, um, masculine malaise. I'm sorry. I was looking at my other question there. What, what, can you dive in quickly? What, what what did you mean by that? Sure. Malaise is probably not a word you use very often or have ever even heard of at all, uh, which is kind of why I like it. It lets me use a word that we get to define without it sort of having other baggage. Mm-hmm. But the idea of malaise is kind of a discouragement and unease because you know something's wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. You can't quite decide what's wrong. It's that feeling of uneasiness that kind of makes you makes it makes it difficult to move forward to make a decision. Right. So I think that's the way of describing what most of the men I know are experiencing right now. We we know something's not right. Like it's true of me personally. I'm not as good as I could be. I'm not the man I could be. But also culturally, it's just complicated right now. And I'm not sure exactly what it is to be a better man or how you get there. And there can be because of this malaise, this sort of feeling that we have around masculinity, we can sort of give up the pursuit. We can just settle into the way we are and think, well, this is just what it means to be a man, I guess. And I, I don't think that's true. I think there is a path for us to become better men. We just have to wake ourselves up and, and be able to diagnose the problem and then start prescribing some better ways of moving forward. Yeah. And, and you just saying uh, prescribing a, a, a solution, I'm putting it in my own words. You talk mm-hmm. about that in the book about, um, I got, you say it differently, but about self-inventory, self-evaluation. I don't think most men even understand what that is. And I think that maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me, feel free, but I think that's part of the problem. Now, now I do believe external forces in our society and politics and media and movies and on and on and on and on, right? Television shows that show the guy that is the idiot and the, the woman knows everything there is to know all of that sort of together, all that noise in my opinion, it it only furthers and exacerbates the problem that young men are trying to figure out is what ex- where do I fit? Where do I belong? And I like what you said in the book towards the end that it it's about constant evaluate what who is it that says you know a, a life unexamined I forgot who that was but a life un- mm. non examined yep. is not living at all. But yeah, I I I completely agree with you when I when I was reading that part of the book. Yeah, it's uh, the truth is too. Well, you can see on the digital version of the book, I can see where people have underlined things, which is really fascinating. And one of the lines that gets underlined more than any other is the line in the book that we've become experts at what's wrong with the world, but are amateurs at what's wrong with ourselves. I think that's a little bit of what you're describing. We know, I mean, look, we all have theories about politics and about the economy. And, you know, you don't have to be you you don't have to be very old to start forming opinions about what's wrong with the world. Uh, But the truth is, most of us don't pay that much attention to why we do the things we do. Um, There's one of the sort of stories that or pieces of advice that anchors the whole book is from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a young man named Timothy who was pastoring in a really difficult place, Ephesus. There was conflict there, division. There was division amongst uh, the genders. There was false teaching in the church. Timothy was young. 
Uh, one of the things that made it challenging was he was looked down upon because of his youth. Paul had to kind of encourage him to, to carry the, that responsibility, even though he was young. But Paul gave him a really interesting piece of advice. You know, he he told him, you're going to have to deal with false teaching in the church. You're going to have to deal with these leadership problems. But the way he said that he would really make progress was he gave him two pieces of advice. Paul says uh, that you'll you'll demonstrate your progress by keeping a close watch on your life and on your teaching. And he goes on to say that by this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. He's talking there about you'll you'll lead well, you'll bear this responsibility well. And those two things I think are really interesting, that Timothy should pay close attention to his life. Why do I do the things that I do? What motivates my behavior? What are areas that I need to grow? But also he needs to pay close attention to the teaching, which is shorthand for our way of saying the gospel, the thing that you've received through the church. So these these two pieces in my mind are sort of the left foot, right foot of making progress as a man. How do I pay close attention to my own life? If you do that alone, you'll sort of spiral out into self-obsessions, right? Pride, or it'll end in despair. Uh, how do I also bring in then what I have by faith, what I have through my my the teaching of the church through the gospel? Uh, if you just, by the way, have doctrine and teaching and you don't ever apply it to yourself, then it doesn't lead to change either. It really takes these two works, recognizing where I have need in my life and I need to grow, and then recognizing how the gospel, how what Christ has given me, actually helps me mature into something better. And according to Paul, that was the way Dim, uh, Timothy would demonstrate his progress in that difficult place and time that he was trying to grow and lead. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, fantastic. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I really strongly, strongly, guys, if you, you know, you're listening to this, man, so, so important. I think uh, introspect and self self-evaluation, you, you just, I don't think we do enough of that, you know, and I don't know, maybe that for some reason to some men that touches on the sensitive side. I don't know, but re regardless, I think that's, I think that's important. Okay. So you, you came up with these five instincts, these five, if I can get it out, these five instincts, how, what was the process and how did you, I mean, good Lord, there's thousands of instincts we could have, but how did you land on these five? What was the what was the guiding light for you to say, you know what? I think these are the five that are the most important. Yeah, the most important part, I think, is helpful because I'm not saying these are the only instincts you could possess, nor am I saying that they're exclusive to men. What I am trying to say in the book is these are, I think, pretty, five pretty big instincts that if you pay attention to, you'll recognize at some point in your life as a man, uh, as a man. A couple of things. I use C.S. Lewis's definition of instinct, which it's pretty simple, but it sounds maybe a little complicated. Lewis says an instinct is behavior as if from knowledge. So an instinct is acting as if you had thought it through and decided to act, but you hadn't. So you ask yourself, why do I fall prey to that same temptation, that same sin? Well, uh, to grow, you start asking yourself, might there be behavioral patterns that I haven't really thought about things beneath the surface that are motivating that behavior that I really need to sort of dig down and get to the root to. So for instance, uh, two men could commit the sin of lying, but they could commit that sin for very different reasons. The instinct could be different. One man could lie to try and gain something out of sort of envy, envy right? Uh, I want something, I'm going to lie in order to get it. 
Another man could lie to protect his image and his reputation because he feels insecure in it. You could, We can commit sins for different motivations or reasons, and that's really why we're talking about instincts, what's going on beneath the sin that's motivating it. Uh, the five instincts that I cover in the book are sarcasm, adventure, ambition, reputation, and apathy. And I actually took those from a famous uh, monologue in one of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, the opening lines will probably be familiar. Maybe you've read them in some uh, high school English class or college English class. But Shakespeare has this monologue, all the world's a stage. And each of us uh, have our entrance and our exits. And a man in his day plays several parts. And Shakespeare goes on to describe these stages of a man's life from birth to death. Uh, I take the middle five in which he grows from basically what we would imagine a school age, uh, maybe teen, on up to what we might imagine as retirement years. And I use those five stages that Shakespeare describes, really images, and I pair them with a, a biblical character so that you can see how it's at work in the life of that biblical character and then begin to recognize how it might be at work in your own life. Yeah. And as I was reading through those five instincts, I was caught up in that. I don't know that we'll have time to talk about each one, but it, you know, anytime that I'm doing research, I'm thinking about the, the young guys, my listeners here, and what I think could be a benefit to them. And if you don't mind, there are a couple that I just pulled out a sentence or a phrase that just sort of hit me. And it's usually what you do when you read, you're like, wow, that sort of made me think, or this could be very applicable. One of them was that I liked was in sarcasm, which is the first one you talk about and I know you talk about a lot, of, a lot of different things, but this is what hit me, that it is a sign of immaturity. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. So for each of the instincts, I think they can be, I think they're basically neutral. So instinct, adventure, ambition, these are not bad things, nor are they good things. They're, remember, they're, they're things that might be motivating our behavior that if we're unaware of, or if we overindulge them, they can become destructive. The goal is to recognize them and mature them, learn to handle them. Um, I use the analogy in the book that it's like a, it's like a poison, right? Uh, a doctor who's really skilled knows how to use just the exact dose so that you could save a person's life. But if you just crack open a bottle and start doing stuff with it, you're likely to hurt yourself or someone else. You don't have the wisdom, right? So how do you learn mm -hmm. to steward these things? So when it comes to sarcasm, certainly sarcasm isn't a sin. Tell a funny joke, be sarcastic. I think there's places in the Bible where the Old Testament prophets used sarcasm to make some points. But I think we all also know that sarcasm can be a way of avoiding things that we don't want to deal with. We all know the kind of the kind of man who makes everything a joke so that they don't have to take anything seriously. And it can become a tool for covering up our contempt for authority, our unwillingness to be challenged or to, to be corrected, our unwillingness to learn from someone else, that we can sort of laugh everything off and make everything a joke as a means of not having to deal with it. And when that becomes the case, it really traps us in a kind of immaturity. We're not able to learn and grow because we're constantly ignoring the lesson, using our sense of humor or sarcasm as a way of dismissing it or diminishing, diminishing it and not having to deal with it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I, again, I think that and I think yeah, you see a sec uh, security, you see sarcasm in a, in a lot of young men. Now, granted, they're young, they're growing up, but I think that was something good for them to hear in, in maybe tagging on to what you said. If if you are young and, and we can, like I just said, we can see that sarcasm is a part of a young man's life. 
But if that doesn't change over time, that, like you said, that be, can become a real problem for a, a man in later in his years. Okay. I want to, I want to talk about two more. Um, adventure was another one. And there was a passage in there, a line in there that I liked. I, I think I know what you're meaning, but for my listeners, you were talking about taking up the sword and slaying the dragon, something along those lines. I love that imagery. What, what did you mean behind that imagery when you wrote that? So, I think adventure can be a complicated one. There's certainly nothing wrong with having adventure. I write in there about hunting. I like to hunt, like to be outdoors. Uh, But there is a kind of desire for adventure that actually makes it difficult to commit to anything meaningful. And the reason I say that is there's this kind of cultural narrative. So it's in a lot of the movies that you're watching and stories that you hear that say that to find who you really are, your true self you have to leave home you have to abandon you have to abandon traditions and your parents and religion and place and you have to go find yourself on some kind of epic quest right this is that idea of taking on the dragon and figuring out who you are and it's only when you do that you'll you'll have a meaningful life and i use samson's story in the bible to talk about how even though he's constantly going on these adventures it never really pays off. He never becomes a better version of himself. He just loses all of the things that he had. He loses his relationship with God. He loses his relationship with his people. He loses the divine calling, the real adventure that God was leading him into because he's constantly chasing after what he thinks is going to be his adventure, his identity, his actualization. And he ends up losing the thing God is trying to do. So adventure is something you have to be really careful with. There's nothing wrong with an adventure. God calls us into adventures. It's certainly a part of life. But if you find yourself constantly restless, you're always looking for the next thing. You're always looking for some adventure that's going to define you. And you struggle to make commitments to a place or as you're growing to a spouse or to uh, a, a community of faith. If your adventures are always weakening those commitments, then it's probably not going to lead you to the kind of meaning that you think it's going to. Fantastic. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. The last one here is we're moving towards the end here. I don't, I won't talk about every one of them, but I, but these three, I think were important because I'd love for the listeners to to hear you expound on it. And I touched on this earlier reputation. You talk about reputation versus character. What exactly is that? What did you mean by that? Can you break that down for us a little more? Sure. So reputation can be a good thing. The Bible encourages us to have a good reputation. It's one of the qualifications for leadership in the pastoral letters. Uh, But we as men can also get too protective of our public image. You can sort of imagine that if I can be really successful in one thing, whether it's sports, whether it's a hobby, whether it's uh, academics, perhaps it's a relationship. If I can just be really good at one thing, then it'll make up for all the stuff that I'm not bad at. I can sort of cover up all of my failures by just leaning into this one public image, this reputation for being great at one thing. Instead, the Bible teaches us to embrace integrity. And integrity, we get the word integrity from the word integer, a whole number. So we did English class a moment ago. Now we're doing math class, right? (laughs) So uh, an integer is a whole number. There's no fraction. There's no missing pieces. It's a complete whole. And that's the way the Bible encourages us to live our lives, not dividing our lives into the thing we're good at that we sort of lean into, but instead before God and before some other people, perhaps a pastor or perhaps a close friend that we can trust, we're willing to sort of be honest about everything that's going on in our life. 
a real man of integrity is not someone who always does the right thing. We're going to make mistakes. A real man of integrity is somebody who's willing to take responsibility for the things they get wrong and confess those before God and to take responsibility for for that being in your life. And that's a much, much higher calling as men. Uh, We're supposed to have a good reputation, but we're also supposed to be honest before the Lord, confessing everything that's going on in our life and working that whole into this image we have of who we are before God. Yeah, I think that's great. I I, I think there's a there's an element of uh, a lot of men wearing masks, you know, and we can get into all those conversations and and even young men of especially young men trying to figure out who they quote unquote sure. who they are, you know. Yeah, you're trying on those identities, you're trying to protect that image, earn that reputation, and some of that is a part of growing up, but you have to always balance that with even as I'm wrestling with those things, I'm I'm bringing that wrestling before the Lord. I'm I'm expressing before the Lord, this is who I actually am. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here are the questions I'm asking. We're walking that out with God as a part of our process of growing. Yeah, this has really, really been really good. I appreciate the book, Chase. I, I wish you the best. Tell us, uh, tell us where they can pick this book up. Sure. So anywhere you buy books, it's available. I always let the guys know there's an audiobook version. I know that's what guys are looking for. I want to listen. So feel free to grab that. And uh, there's a bunch of resources on the five masculine instincts.com. You can Google it or put it in. There's an online assessment you can take. There's you version reading plans. If you have the Bible reading you version app, there's one for each instinct. If you want to learn more uh, and there's also a contact form on there. So if you've got a question or you want clarification on something that comes directly to me. So feel free to jump on there and shoot me an email and I'd be happy to talk or, or continue the conversation any way I can. So this is great. So the last thing I want to do as we close this out, I always give my guests the last word on my podcast. What is a bit of advice, piece of wisdom, a nugget, anything, just something that if you were sitting in front of a young man and wanted to give him some encouragement in some way, a challenge for that matter, whatever it is, what is something that you would leave us with as we close us out? And Chase, thanks again for being a part of the Thrivefoot podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I would say this. Um, I'm a reader. I know you've d- talked about that on the podcast as well, too, the value of reading. Uh, the biblical characters are not there just to be sort of uh, advice for life, right? Life verses. Oh, that was helpful. I read that. I'm going to apply that. These biblical characters are companions for you. And I think the best thing you could do as a man is settle into a reading of the Bible that recognizes I'm on this journey with these men of the Bible, and they will walk this journey with me through all of life. No matter what I'm facing, no matter what discouragement or disappointment or struggle, somewhere in the scriptures, you will find a man wrestling and dealing with those same things and learn to find them, learn to sort of live life with those biblical stories as a way of guiding you. And you'll have access to something that's old and rich and deep and wise and so much more tested than the advice of this world. I say make those biblical characters complete companions for growing as a man and you're going to find a lot of strength and wisdom there this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only views and opinions expressed by guests are not necessarily those of the host please seek the advice of a trusted adult or qualified professional on matters specific to your needs Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. 
they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.